I'll start. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for music and sun and cold, God. I just, um, I want to lift you up in praise this morning, God. I pray that um, your word would help us to glorify you more, to know you deeply and to love you more fully, God. And, um, and that as we leave today, that um, we would take this charge upon our hearts, God, not um, with a sense of, of duty, God, as we learned last week, not um, not to produce godliness by, by white-knuckled obedience, God, but because your word is good and we can have joy in obeying you because you are a good father. God, I, I just pray that you would ready our hearts this morning, that if there's anything um, that is in the way of us drawing close to you this morning, God, that we would be able to lay those things at your feet and receive your word with gladness and readiness, Father. We love you so, so much. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm excited to be working through this book over the next, uh, we've, been, we've been going through verse by verse, section by section, chapter by chapter through First Timothy for a few weeks now. Um, one of the things just to remind us of what Timothy is and all this, Timothy is a, a letter written by Paul the Apostle to Timothy, his son in the faith. This is a, a young man that he discipled from a young age, a uh, young man that he took with him on his, uh, on his missionary journeys who he raised up, and now Timothy has grown up. He's likely in his early 30s, and he is, this is likely his first serious long-term ministry assignment that Paul has sent him towards. He is pastoring the church of Ephesus, Ephesus alongside the other elders, and he is um, serving there. Um, uh, one of the things that I find interesting is the personalness of this letter. It's very different than his letters to the churches. When he writes a letter to the church, he's very, like, very clearly building on linear lines of logic. And in this, this is very personal. And he's giving Timothy uh, a lot of advice where he's not spending a lot of time 
you know, backing it up uh, in all these ways. He's just clearly saying, Timothy, you know this, do this. You know this, do that. Um, last week, we talked about uh, the mystery of godliness, specifically how it is Christ in us, uh, pursuing right relationship with him that will produce godliness in us. And when we, pr- when we focus on him, the mystery of godliness is that Christ has been revealed to us. This is the, the picture here. So when we, when we focus on our relationship with Jesus, when we pr- uh, pursue him and we focus our, all of our life and attention on him, that produces godliness. However, if we pursue uh, white-knuckled self, you know, uh, uh, obedience. If we try to produce godliness through abstinence from things and things like this, we see that that actually is the, uh, what Paul calls the doctrine of demons here in, in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. We move on from that as we, as we come out of chapter 4 into chapter 5, and now Timothy is giving more instructions to, uh, or Paul is giving Timothy more instructions for the church. Today's uh, focus is on, uh, on how, they, how they should show compassion in the household of God. One of the most compelling things about Christianity through the centuries is its emphasis on compassion and care for those in need. This emphasis does not exist in other religions. Even even in our world today where there is an atheistic type of compassion, that atheistic compassion is rooted in the Christian worldview that, uh, that views every human as having dignity because they are created the image of God. In fact, if you go through the centuries and you look at other atheistic movements that didn't have this as the core root of their society, these, these, uh, these cultures did not have compassion. However, it, you, you might look at other religions like Islam. Islam puts an emphasis on God's holiness and honor, um, but they, it does not have an emphasis on compassion, the compassion of God. In fact, while almsgiving is a part of Islam, it is less about compassion and more about pity. Similarly, Hinduism and Buddhism, the compassion is not emphasized in any real way at all. But why? Why does Christianity have a core emphasis on showing care and compassion for those who are needy? I think it's because at the core of our faith is Jesus, who saw us in our spiritual need and had compassion on us, sacrificially giving himself for us and showing us mercy and giving us grace uh, through the cross. Beyond this, we see from the beginning, all the way back into Genesis, God shows extra care for those who are most vulnerable in our societies. We, God, God is from the beginning. If you read the book of Leviticus, any of you guys doing the Bible through a year plan, right? You guys, you guys have just finished Leviticus, are now in Numbers, um, and you're probably with me going, man, there's a lot, a lot of things in here that are, that are hard to unpack. But when you're, when you're doing that, one of the things you see from the very beginning is that God has a deep care for those who are most vulnerable. We see him think, talk, uh, taking care of widows and orphans. We see uh, single, uh, single women being taken care of. We see poor and even the refugees being thought of and taken care of in God's society. You think about place, things like the widow of Zarephath. You think about Ruth, who was a widow. You think about Tamar. You think about Hagar, who was a single mom out by herself we, uh, and God taking care of her. You think about how God commanded the people not to cut the edges of their field to what? To take care of the poor and to not pick up anything that fell on the ground, but to leave that for those who were poor. As followers of Jesus, the closer we are to him, the more uh, his heart will be reflected in our own heart. So the church should be marked by compassion and care for those in, who are in need, particularly those who are most vulnerable. This, this has been at the core of Christianity since the beginning. It has been one of the most compelling things to the world about Christianity through the centuries. And it is something that I think the church uh, must recover and, and really genuinely continue on in for us to truly uh, uh, have, a, have a real apologetic that will speak to our current world. So let's get into verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 start, Paul starts by 
uh, emphasizing the familial nature of the relationships in the church. Let's read it. It says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So like I said, Paul is focusing on the familial nature of, of, the, of the relationships in the church. The church is meant to resemble a family a lot more than it resembles an institution. Our, our relationships are marked by familial love, kindness, respect, and care. This doesn't mean that the church should dissolve and replace your DNA family, but rather it adds a spiritual family and, um, that supplements your physical family. And in exceptional circumstances, the church does fulfill that familial role, that DNA family role for, uh, uh, of a physical family. You think of Paul and Timothy. Um, Timothy, we, all, all we know about his dad was that he was a Gentile. That's all we know. Um, it seems as though Timothy's dad is either dead or he has abandoned Lois and Eunice. We're not exactly sure which one of that is, but Paul takes this young man and he uh, pours his life into him and he becomes more than just a discipler to Timothy alongside his parents, but rather he becomes like a father to him. In fact, he calls him his son in the faith. He doesn't call other people that. He calls Timothy that because Paul in some ways assumed a fatherly responsibility for Timothy. In our world today, there are people like, uh, we, we see this, the same sort of thing that happens in, uh, in, in the world. Like uh, in, if, you're, if you're over in the Middle East, if somebody from Islam, a young man from Islam or a young woman from Islam tur uh, uh, turns and follows Jesus, it's likely they will be disavowed and disowned from their family. They will have no inheritance, they will have no place to live, and they will be pushed out of society, if not beaten or killed for their faith. What, what should the church do in that situation when they have no family, when young people come to know and trust Jesus? What? They, they actually become their family. People in the church actually take them in, actually become more than just spiritual uncles and aunts, but actual fathers and mothers in their life. In our world today, we have lots and lots of young men and women who are missing dads or moms in their life. I think of many young people through the years that, uh, that God has put into my life who didn't have somebody in their life, didn't have a father or a mother. I think of a young man named, uh, <laughs> named Antoine, who in my first church, he uh, basically, his mom, uh, did, he didn't live with his mom and, he didn't, and his dad was kind of off doing his own thing. And Antoine basically lived uh, uh, with his grandparents who somewhat fulfilled that role, but who had their own things to do. And so Antoine came to the church uh, looking for uh, uh, really familial relationship, looking for connection. And he received that. He received fathers and mothers and people who poured into him. He got connected to families in such a way where they look at him like a son, where they have a presence for him at Christmas, where he is deeply connected. And I think of other uh, young people in, in, the, in, the life of, of, in the life of my ministry where I've seen this happen. And when the church is at its best, it not only does it supplement what healthy Christ-honoring families are doing by coming alongside parents and helping to disciple their children as spiritual aunts and uncles, but they also come alongside and uh, when there is no person doing that, they come alongside and they actually deeply engage with these kids, becoming fathers and mothers to them in truth, not just, in, not just as a supplement. And it's not just young people that sometimes need this. Sometimes there are elderly people in a congregation that need help, and there is no family that is either able or willing to help. They're, they find themselves in physical need and in financial need. And how should the church respond? In the same way that we respond to children who are in need, the church itself, uh, the church itself stands in where the family um, is not present or able to, to help. This is actually what verses 3 through 15 are all about, helping people who are in actual need. Before we go into verses 3 through 15, let's break down these verses to make sure we understand what kind of familiar relationship that Timothy is talking through. Well, 
Paul begins by uh, writing to Timothy. Remember, he's a young pastor in his early 30s in Ephesus, and he wants to make sure that Timothy relates to the body as a family when he is speaking to them. So he gives them instructions. He says, first, treat older men like fathers, not rebuking them, but encouraging them. What does that mean? Well, that word rebuke there in the Greek is the word epiplesso, which is not the normal word for rebuke. In fact, if you see rebuke in other parts of the Bible, that's not this word. This word actually has, has a connotation to it of sharp correction, of very strong, very sharp correction. This might be the way a commanding officer might dress down a recruit when they step out of line. They get in their face, they yell at them, they tell them these sorts of things. Many of you guys who've been to boot camp might have experienced something like this. Paul says, do not, do not uh, uh, rebuke uh, 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 someone in this way, but rather encourage them. That word encourage is actually the word parakaleo. And you remember when we were doing the one another series, the word parakaleo was, uh, was the word to mean, meaning to come alongside and exhort, to come alongside and exhort. That means uh, you could be giving encouragement, that you could, means you could be giving comfort, that means you could be giving admonishment or even teaching, but you're doing it from beside them in closeness with them. So Paul is basically telling Timothy to make sure that he treats older men like fathers and uh, when he needs to correct them, because sometimes even older men, I know most of you older men in here, not definitely never, but other older men, they, they sometimes need correction and the way Timothy should correct them is by coming alongside them, not standing in a superior place, but rather lovingly come alongside them and correcting them the way that you might correct a father. Now for Timothy, this would have uh, Timothy, like I said, doesn't seem to have much of a relationship with his father. Um, as far as we can tell in Scripture, it seems like he's absent there. So Paul might be, it, it might be flashing to Timothy in his mind, treat them, treat older men the way you would treat me. When you need to correct them, correct them the way you would correct me, Timothy. I think it's possible for young leaders in the church especially to fall into the trap of using authority to compel obedience. The way a commander com compels obedience but Paul is teaching Timothy to come alongside and to lovingly pastor older men like they are his father. He goes on to say to treat younger men like little brothers, loving them, teaching them, watching, over, watching out for them, caring for them. When you, and when you need to correct them, do it like an older brother would. Do it like you would correct them the way you would correct a brother, which is from a place of love and care and respect for them. To treat older women like your mother with respect, with care, with love. Um, but think, uh, I'm sure Paul, uh, when he says treat them like a mother, Paul is thinking of Lois and Eunice, his mother and grandmother who were following Jesus. And he says, and when they need correction, Timothy, how would you do it? Well, you wouldn't do it sharply, definitely. You wouldn't rebuke them that way. No, you would come alongside them and lovingly speak truth into their life in a way that reminds them of what it means to follow Jesus. Finally, he says, treat younger women like little sisters looking after them, loving them, listening to them, caring for them, and even protecting them. Paul says, do this in all purity, which basically means, uh, is a reminder for Timothy to guard his heart. And don't be gross when you're, when you're doing this. And when you need to correct them, do it with gent the gentleness and care you would of a little sister. All of this denotes a relationship that is close. Now, before we move forward, I don't want to go deep into this, but I want to um, acknowledge something that is that is that has been around in the church. In many, many times, church leaders, in an effort to, be, uh, to, to, really, to really do the last part of that verse, which is in all purity, they have uh, many times created an artificial distance between themselves and women in the congregation. 
They, they've forgotten the first part of verse 2, which is to treat them like little sisters, where there is a relationship, where there is care, there is love. And instead of doing this, they, in fact, they avoid women altogether. It, for for church, church leaders, uh, for men of God, it is important for us to not only, not only to maintain purity, guard our hearts in the way that we, we care for people, but to actually lean in and love women in the body of Christ as much as we love men. Let's move on to verse uh, 3 through 8. Starts off by, by saying, honor widows who are truly widows. Now, first of all, that word honor, it can indicate esteeming someone highly, but it also can indicate financial support. In this scenario, it likely means both, but with an emphasis on financial support. Paul says, honor or support, support those widows who are truly widows. We'll explain what a true widow is in just a moment. But before we do, I want you to understand why they might need support. You guys know that they did not have social security and things like this in ancient Rome. Um, the way, one of the ways that they provided for women uh, when they would go into marriage as a protection measure for them, uh, when, when a woman would get married, in, in Roman law, they, a dowry should be given for that woman. So a dowry was, in essence, a life insurance policy against their husband's death. That dowry was not meant to be, taken, uh, uh, to be used uh, at least while the, while the woman was young in this way, but rather that dowry was meant to be like a life insurance policy. In, ca in case your husband dies, this is something you can live off of, all right, in this way. In fact, when, when the husband would die, the, usually somebody would be made the caretaker of that dowry, and then that woman would live off of that dowry. But obviously, you know how things go, and sometimes dowries aren't maintained. Sometimes people raid the dowry in order to buy that thing or do this thing like this, and there will be people who find themselves in need in this way. So there are, there are widows who are true widows. What does it mean for someone to be a true widow? This is someone who has no children or, uh, uh, or grandchildren to take care of. And this is what the verses say here. Uh, we, can, we can read it out. It says, uh, honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. All right. So the idea is that they don't have, uh, uh, if there are women who, the, the true widows are someone who doesn't have children to take care of them. So Paul says they have no children or grandchildren to take care of them. And then in verse 5 it says they are left all alone. So there's nobody. There's no children. There's no grandchildren. There's no relative who can, uh, who can honor them by taking care of them and bringing them into their household and taking care of them physically, financially, emotionally, spiritually, loving on them during their golden years. No. The, these, are, these are women who are left all alone, but even in their all-aloneness, their hope is still in God alone. And they're, they're following God, and they are serving the body, even in their golden years, even in their old age. How are they doing this? Well, uh, Paul makes it clear in verse 5. It seems that they're doing this through intercessory prayer. Night and day, they are making supplications to the Lord. The idea is that they are deeply engaged in the ministry of intercessory prayer. Why would this be a ministry that widows would be involved in? Well, I think it's not just because they might be good at intercessory prayer, although that's probably part of it, but rather it's because no matter how frail you are, no matter how physically deteriorated you are, you can give yourself to uh, supplications and prayers. And this is real ministry that happens. If you don't think that prayer ministry is real ministry, you don't understand our God at all. This is very much so. This is where the battleground is, and these women are deeply engaged in that when they are praying for this. Then in verse 6, let's read it. It says, But she who is self-indulgent is dead 
even while she lives. So evidently there are some widows who, when their husband dies, they live self-indulgently. What does this mean? Well, that word self-indulgent there is the word to live riotously or extravagantly or luxuriously. Evidently, there were widows who were not seeking to use their golden years for the glory of God. Now, have you ever met this person? I, wanna, I, want, I'm gonna, I don't want you to point fingers, but I want you to think about this person. Maybe you've met them. They work for 30 to 40 years hard. They, they, they raise their kids, and, uh, and they retire into a retirement of self-indulgence. Their life revolves around cruises, restaurants, vacations, and leisurely activities like golf and fishing and all these different things. They, all they live for are these sorts of things. Their lives have become primarily about themselves. Um, in Florida, we have a whole community devoted to elderly decadence. It's called the Villages. And it's basically a retirement community where er elderly people amuse themselves to death, literally. Paul says... These people are dead even while they still are alive. What does that mean? These are people who have basically hung up the gloves on life. They have given up on doing anything meaningful for the kingdom and basically are just trying to have fun while they wait to die. The implicit call here is don't waste your golden years. No plan for them, save for them, leverage them for the kingdom purposes. As you approach retirement age, realize that you will likely have more freedom and capability to do more to serve the Lord at it, during this time than at ever any time before in your life. I think of people I met on the mission field, some of my favorite people I ever met. Uh, there, there, was a, there was a couple named Dick and Nicole. They were, uh, they were old. I, I don't know how to explain it, except they, were, they, were, uh, they had retired. And when they retired, they felt God saying, we want uh, uh, to use your, leverage your, uh, your golden years for the glory of God. And what did they do? They they stepped up and they said, I want to go to the mission field. And they ended up in the Negev of Israel, working among the Bedouins where there were no known believers. So they go, they go to a desert, they go to a place where they don't speak the language, and they go to show and share the gospel of grace to the Bedouin people. And through their ministry, the first six known believers of the Bedouin people came to know Jesus during their time of ministry. Now, sadly, Dick got very sick with cancer, and he, 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 uh, he had to come back to the States um, uh, only uh, seven years into his ministry. But God used those seven years for the glory of God to establish a beachhead for the gospel in, uh, in among the Bedouin people of the Negev. I think of somebody like this saying, I will leverage these years of my life for the glory of God. I will go as long as I can, for as hard as I can, for the glory of God. I think of Peter and Jane. These are people who I was very close with. They lived in Nazareth right alongside us. These, these are people who, uh, uh, he retired from the police force. She retired from, an, uh, from nursing. And they, they immediately uh, uh, left and they went to uh, Nazareth to help build up churches in the Galilee. And they would find areas, any area they could to serve in and to help build the church, to grow the church, to love the church. They said, God, how can you use me during my retirement? And God used them in amazing ways. They left there and they went to Egypt. God used them in Egypt for years there as well. It's not just overseas. So many people I've met through the years have given their talent and their treasure to their local church during their golden years. I think of one man specifically here at Berean who recently went on to be the, with the Lord, Larry, who, who I would see day upon day, week upon week, pouring, his, uh, pouring himself out for the church of God, uh, for, the, for the church here at Berean, loving people when they couldn't even see it. They didn't even know what he was doing, but he was here oftentimes. Him and, him and Sharon were here oftentimes uh, 
40, 50 hours a week, loving, serving, building up this church for the glory of God, using their golden years for the glory of God. My encouragement to you, young person, is this, to plan for your retirement. Not so you can partake in the living death that is self-indulgence, no, but so that you can leverage your golden years for kingdom excellence. This is what these widows were doing. And it is my hope that like Paul in 2 Timothy 4, that all of us will be able to say something like this at the end of our lives. I have poured out my life like a drink offering, God. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Don't coast across the finish line of life. Rather, press on. Think of it like a race. What do people do at the end of a long race? Do they slow down? No, they press in. They give everything they have at the end. They go as hard as they can for as long as they can, as fast as they can, until they can go no more. My encouragement to you, young person, is don't wait. Start living like this today. Because the truth is, is um, one of the things I've realized through years of ministry and just through talking with many folks who are older, um, older people, uh, uh, have our be, you know, we become what we are becoming today. Let me say it that way. So if you are today focusing on living your life, leveraging your life for the glory of God, as you get older, you will do that more and more. However, if you are focused on living self-indulgently today, you will do that more and more towards the end of your life. Back to these verses. So these things are what marked a true widow, someone who didn't have anybody else to take care of them and somebody who had set their hope on God and was serving God even in their old age. Their hope was not in stuff, but, but their, their hope was in Jesus. And they, they continued to minister, um, even, even when their body gave out, ministering through the ministry of intercessory prayer. Now, verse 7 says this, Command these things so that everyone will be above reproach. What, what's the command that he's commanding? Well, he makes it clear in the next verse. He clarifies it. He says that children should take care of their aging parents, financially, physically, honoring them, You honor them when you do this. In many ways, you are reciprocating what they did for you when you were in need as a child. You see all these babies in here? None of them, all of them are leeches. None of them are doing anything to contribute to your household whatsoever. They're just here, and they're taking resources that you could use in other ways. But you gladly do it as parents because you love them, you care for them, you want to build them up. And as your, as your parents age, oftentimes they will find themselves in physical and financial and even emotional and spiritual need. And this is where we as children are, are, are called by God to, to do this. And now in our atomistic culture, our culture that focuses so much on self, a lot of us might think that that's not really our job to take care of our aging parent. But as followers of Jesus, this text makes it clear that it is our responsibility Does this mean that they must move in with you when they get old or they're struggling to physically continue on? Well, maybe, but not necessarily. Each situation is unique. And there is no one-size-fits-all solution. solution. But the principle of providing for them and taking care of their physical and financial needs is a clear mandate of Scripture. The Bible makes it clear that if we ignore this command, we are denying the faith. Why? First, because we're disobeying a clear mandate of Scripture, definitely that, but also, more than this, when, when, we, when we are unwilling to do this, it reveals a heart that is so self-centered that it is unwilling to show even the most basic of grace to our parents. Paul says, even unbelievers do this much. You're worse than them if you don't do this. So how could you do less than that? 
young, young people, especially people with aging parents, plan for how you might help your parents when and if they need assistance. Honor them, provide for them, and love them during this time. Moving on to verse 9, he talks through the idea of uh, qualifications for enrollment as a widow. So he talks about, here's who a true widow is. We should honor them by not only esteeming them, but giving them financial aid. That becomes clear at the end. You'll see. What what does it mean to enroll a widow? Well, the, the idea is it says, let a widow be enrolled. That's the idea of being put on a list. This is for regular support, care, and empowerment for ministry. That's what the church is doing. They're regularly supporting them financially in all these ways and caring for them and uh, empowering them for continued ministry. We think of Acts chapter 6. This is something that marked the church from its earliest ages. From the very beginning in Acts chapter 6, we see that there were widows who needed care. And what was the church doing? It was daily giving support to them. So much so that that when some widows were being overlooked in this, uh, there was a complaint that arose and the church addressed those needs. This This has been normative for the church through the centuries. What kind of, what, how are we empowering them for ministry? Well, obviously we're empowering them for things like uh, 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 prayer, intercessory prayer ministry, but also for doing things like discipling younger women. This is something that most people, uh, if they still have their faculties, can do. You think of Titus 2.3, where older women are called to pour their lives, pour themselves out into younger women. Now, before we go any further into unpacking the, the qualifications for enrollment, one thing that seems clear that's not explicitly said here, but it seems clear in the text and also some historical accounts would probably give, uh, give us the idea that this is probably true, is that when the women were going to be enrolled, put on this list as widows um, for, uh, for support, they made a pledge, um, these women who became widows, enrolled widows, they made a pledge that for the rest of their life, um, they would serve only the Lord. They would forsake remarriage and focus on ministering as best they could for as long as they could. And it seems like since there, were, there was no family to care for them, that they were basically being adopted by the church and now were officially grandmothers in the body of Christ. They were, uh, as grandmothers, as any grandmother who might move in with you, 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 you've known, grandmothers, they don't just sit there and do nothing. No, they do what they can to contribute to the household in their, even in their old age. So what were the qualifications for enrollment? Well, first, it's that they should be 60 years or older. That is ancient by, uh, by first century standards. These are very old women, not just kind of old, but very old women. Um, not today, you guys, 60, 60 is the new 20, right? That's what it is. Um, but then it was different. Um, they were faithful to their husband. That's the picture here when it says they were the husband of only uh, one, uh, 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 they only had one husband or things like this. The picture here is that they were a, a, a one-man woman, kind of like how elders were meant to be a one-woman man, very similar. They, they're not the kind of people who are unfaithful to their spouse. They have a reputation for good works. And what, are the, what's, what does that mean? Well, the type of reputation they would have is that they brought up children. The picture is that they brought up healthily. They've raised up healthy children. They've shown hospitality. They've washed the feet of saints, meaning they have been willing to serve in even unceremonious ways. They've cared for the afflicted, and they've devoted themselves to every good work. This is a faithful grandma who needs help. That's who Paul is describing. And the congregation should be happily and joyously helping her. Just as they have been blessed by her, they should bless her. This is not meant to be one-time support. This is meant to be a continuing, ongoing, um, emotional, spiritual, physical, and financial support that they are giving to these old, older widows. 
And then verses 11 through 14, he says, do not enroll younger widows. Now, you might wonder, why would he not enroll younger widows? Don't they have need? And um, Paul is addressing probably a very specific issue that was a problem here because we see later that there seems to, this, uh, uh, there seemed to be a problem with younger widows. However, the principle might remain here. Um, he, he basically, he's saying they might make a vow or pledge. That's the picture. They might pledge themselves to do this or make a vow, yet they will likely abandon it to remarry because that, that siren call in their culture would have been very high. And by enrolling them, you are setting them up for failure, Timothy. Um, that, that failure will damage both them and the congregation. Now, you might wonder, how could, how could them leaving that damage them and the congregation? Here's what I mean. I'll give you an example that isn't related to widows that maybe will help you see this. When, um, when John Mark set out with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, he had basically pledged to go with them on their whole journey. How do we know this? Because We know this because Paul was disappointed the fact that Timothy didn't, or I mean, not Timothy, um, John Mark didn't continue on with them. In fact, it, it became an issue later on. We'll see. So Tim, uh, uh, Paul, John Mark had basically pledged to go with them on their whole journey, journey, but about halfway through the journey, he abandoned his post. He deserted Paul and Barnabas. This damaged Paul and Barnabas. We know that Paul was very sick when Timothy abandoned them. How do we know? Because right, at, right after he abandoned them, they end up in, uh, uh, in Galatia. And we know that when Paul got to Galatia, he was very sick. That's in Galatians. So... Timothy, uh, or John Mark, abandoned Tim, uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas in their time of need. And that later caused division between Paul and Barnabas in, uh, coming up on their next missionary journey. Basically, it was a mess when, because, uh, because uh, Timothy hadn't uh, uh, fulfilled his pledge. This caused damage to both John Mark and to Paul and Barnabas. And when, when somebody makes a pledge to serve in this way, when they go back on that, oftentimes it creates confusion, frustration, and a mess in the body of Christ. And that's what Paul was wanting to avoid. He's not saying that for them to remarry is bad or evil. He's saying for them to go back, back on a vow that they've made, to go back on a pledge that they've made to the Lord to serve in this way, that does cause problems in the body of Christ. And that is not good. In the same way, these women who were receiving support from the offering of the church, women who had committed the rest of their life to gospel service, when they abandon this to get remarried, it will cause a mess in the congregation. It will injure the body and it will injure the woman um, emotionally in this. So Paul says, do not enroll them at a young age. Another point uh, that Paul brings up is how we are, to try to how, how we are trying to help women, um, the, these people, in ways that are actually wise, in ways that actually um, help them. You see, sometimes we want to help people who are in need, but we help them in a way that actually hurts them in the long term. We, we call this help, uh, when, when helping harms. This happens sometimes. And Paul basically tells Timothy, if you enroll uh, younger, unwise, ungodly widows um, in service this way, you will actually cause harm to them and the body because instead of using their time to pray and build up the body, no, you will free them up to stir up division and help them become idlers um, who are ensnared by the devil. Here's the deal. Paul... Um, uh, as a body, we should be extremely compassionate um, to those who are in vulnerable situations. And we should seek to help them in every way, but we should help them in a way that actually promotes godliness rather than enabling godlessness. We need to be wise and know when our help actually harms someone in the long run. Paul is basically saying to Timothy, 
Um, there are women who you've enrolled who are young, and these women, you've actually enabled them to be ungodly in the way that you're doing this. So don't do it, Timothy. How do we know that? Because verse 15, he says, um, some of them have already done this. Some of them have already gone after Satan, and some of them have already become idlers, causing division in the body of Christ. Some of them have already been ensnared by the devil. So Paul is helping Timothy to clean up this mess by setting clear restrictions. Now, are these restrictions once and for all? Should we wait till 60 before we help anybody or things like this? No, this is a, these are principles that Paul is setting forth for us to understand. Verse 16 reiterates that a family member, even a sister or an aunt, not just children, but even a sister or an aunt uh, uh, should can take a widow in, should take a widow in um, if they're in need. This financial burden should not fall on the church if there is a family member who is capable of, of, of helping. The church should only be supporting widows who are truly widows. So, going through, going through this text, how then should we live based on this text? Some of you are like, this seems like a very particular issue related to the Ephesian church. Um, what can, how can we live in relation to this? Well, first I would say uh, one thing we can take away from this text is uh, the, we should treat the body of Christ like family members, fathers, brothers, sisters, mothers, aunts, uncles, loving them, caring for them, respecting them. Second, my challenge to you is that, that we should n none of us should become indulgent in our old age, but rather let's, let us all plan to use our golden years like these widows devoted to God, building up the kingdom in, uh, as best we can for as long as we can in whatever way we are able. Third, benevolence ministry, um, that is the ministry that is caring for those who are most vulnerable, um, is an important and a vital ministry in the body of Christ. This is something that from the very beginning um, and all throughout all, every single part of the New Testament, we see as a very clear indicator of something that the church was taking part in. For us as believers, we should joyfully and generously contribute to help those who are in need. This should start with our family. Things like our parents, or orphans or foster kids that are in our family, aunts, uncles, or grandparents who are in deep need, we should go out of our way to show compassion and care to them and, and, and benevolently help them in their time of need. But this spreads out from our family into the body of Christ. This should be an integral part of our congregation's ministry, but starting in our congregation and leaking out into our community. What, how do we do this? We do this things like, through things like benevolence ministry. Where, where when people have need, this happens at our body of Christ. Every, every month we take up a benevolence offering, if you, uh, you'll see it in the bulletin. And that benevolence ministry is aimed at helping people who are in need, people who find themselves um, kind of over a barrel. And we, uh, oftentimes the benevolence ministry comes in and helps. And we try to help in a way that actually helps rather than doing, accidentally doing long-term harm. Things like mercy ministry, things like the diaper ministry that, that, that's out here, way, things for providing uh, for people who are in need, specifically um, people who don't have enough financial resources to take care of their children in good ways. There are lots of ways you can get connected with that. Things like foster care ministry. Not only taking kids into your home, fostering them, but also supporting those who are doing that, loving on them, caring for them. Things like hospice ministry, caring for people uh, loving on them, sitting with them uh, during, their, during their final weeks or months of their life. Things like our elder house ministry on the first Sunday of every month after church. Uh, uh, myself and, and, and Marty, we go to the elder house and we go and we, we, we sing and we teach the word of God and we love on, these older, uh, on some of these older folks at the elder house here in Kodiak. You could, th this should be a mark of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And I want to ask you, have, are you involved in any way in any kind of benevolence ministry? 
any kind of mercy ministry, any kind of um, helping those who are most vulnerable. This should be a mark of those who are following Jesus. As we follow him, what happens in our heart? Nobody say, our heart begins to um, reflect that. So my hope is, is that you would take seriously the call to be involved in showing and sharing the gospel of grace to everyone, especially those who find themselves in the most vulnerable of situations, in the margins of society. I want to close with this. Why do we do this? Well, we do this because, like we said at the beginning, our God had compassion on us when we were weak and when we were broken, when we were spiritually separated from him, when we were his enemy. Christ came for us and he died for us. He had compassion on us. He showed mercy to us and he gave us grace. This is the God that we serve. Jesus came to the earth for the specific purpose of of, of saving us while we were sinners, while we were vulnerable and in need in bondage to our sin, he saved us. He showed us grace. This is the God that we serve. If you've never given your life to this God, if you've never trusted in him as your Lord and Savior, the beauty of the gospel is that you can trust in Jesus in faith and God will save you today. All you need to do is look to him and say, Jesus, I give my life to you. I surrender my life to you. I am yours, God. I will go where you want me to go. I will do what you want me to do. I am yours. I want to be a new creation in you. God will save you. Christianity is not a, a set of axioms of how we should live, but no, rather it's a person whom we follow, whom we give our life to. So my hope is that if you are in here and you have never given your life to God, that you would unite yourself to him today and you would begin to embody him to this world for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, passages like this that remind us, God, of your heart for those who are, who are in need, who remind who passages that remind us of the compassion that we are called to show those who are in deepest need. Lord, I pray that, God, you would help us to lay aside self-indulgence. Lord, I pray that you would help us to lay aside living our lives for us, us, us. Lord, I pray that, God, you would help us to become people who reflect your heart for those who are in need, who out of the overflow of the joy that we have in you, out of the overflow of all we have in you, Lord, we serve those around us. God, not out of guilt, not out of shame, not out of pity, but Lord, out of love for them, even in their sin, even in their brokenness, even in their need. Lord, I pray that you would help us to look on the widow, to look on the the sojourner, to look on the orphan, to look on any of those in need and to have compassion and care and to be willing to show mercy and grace to all those who are in need for the glory of God. I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.